Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm here with David Chisler again for the second yeah. time. <laughs> guest. Uh, last time you were on, we were talking about uh, map and weapons of mass creation and you know your whole sort of philosophy around creation in the workplace and, and the website that you have. Um, but you're back uh, now with a with a book, uh, which for those of watching uh, is called With All of You, uh, which is a book of, of poetry, and there's a, a website associated as well there. Um, yeah, so David, welcome back. Thank you. It's, it's good to be back. <laughs> <laughs> and we were just talking before you came on. You're, I didn't, I didn't, I knew you were in Holland, but you're in the middle of a forest in the yeah. middle of Holland, right? Yeah. So I'm in the middle of what's called the Utrechtse Heuvelrug, which translated means the, yeah, the kind of forest spine uh, of Utrecht province. So it's it's the most heavily wooded area of the Netherlands. So I'm my window. I'm looking out at a whole bunch of trees, and we're very near quite dense forests. Just a beautiful green, uh, natural, yeah, nature rich area. Right. Yeah. That and that. Uh, yeah. Because we talked about the different. Yeah. It's all coming back. We talked about the different ways in which you can get into your creative zone, and getting in, in nature was one of them. Which I guess yeah. is pretty easy where you are. It's pretty easy here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and. To what extent has that inspired the poetry then? Because that's the, we'll talk a little bit about the new project. Yeah. Well, um, to be honest with you, not that much, actually. Um, I, I, I've been writing poetry on and off, you know, since I was 10 years old. So that's 40 years now. Uh, <laughs> um, so it's kind of become one of those almost automated behaviours. It's one of the ways that I use to process how I see the world, what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling. Um, so of course, some of the work is inspired by my immediate environment, but it's not like without this particular environment that, that the book would never have happened. Um, and anyway, the, the, all the poems that are in the book, um, are from the last three years and I have only lived here for a year. So it's, it's a collection of all the poems that I published on a sort of crowdfunding site called Patreon. Right, and this is sort of the greatest hits of the poems from that period. Oh, okay. So you and you've got a collection of patrons who've been chipping in who've, to fund your exactly poetry. who've paid wow. for everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's a nice model because you know normally with crowdfunding, you you put in your your ten pounds or your twenty five pounds, and then you wait until the, the funding cycle is finished, and then the artist makes whatever it is, you know, a book or a CD, and you get a copy. And maybe your name appears in it. Maybe there's some some uh, higher tiers where you get extra goodies, depending on how much money you put in. Patreon works in a similar way, but it's a subscription model. So instead of paying a one-off thing of, say, 25 quid and then getting your book with your name in it and maybe, a I don't know, a personalized thing with it, um, you put in one or two pounds a month, and then you get access to everything that's produced as it's produced. And then so what I've done is at the end of this cycle, I just made the ebook available for free to all of my patrons right. as a way of saying, hey, you know, if it wasn't for you, this wouldn't have happened. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's a, that's, a, that's a great model, isn't it? I, I suppose it's, a, it's an old model, right? That was how the court of the, of, you know, of the day would have uh, presumably funded its, art, uh, its artists, yeah. right? It would have given them a, a stipend, but we can now do that democratically, right? We yeah, don't exactly. need the good graces of the of the local monarch. No, I mean I guess that's where the name Patreon. You know, it's patron with an e for electronic, 
Um, and that's exactly the idea. You know, you just giving an artist money and saying, hey, you just carry on doing what you're doing. I think what you're doing is good or important or I like it or I like you or whatever. Uh, here's some money. Um, keep on doing your, what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, and so, yeah. I guess that also gives you a little bit more of a sense of I should actually get on with this, right? I mean, does it help in the motivation? Absolutely. Space? I mean, you know, as I was explaining in the beginning, I've I've been writing poetry for most of my life, but three years I think is the longest burst I've ever had. You know, because it's just kind of like, well, I've got to put something up at least once a week, every week, because these people are giving me money. <laughs> and look, you know, my my Patreon account is not as big as someone like Amanda Palmer's. It's not like I'm earning tens of thousands of dollars. In fact. Who's Amanda Palmer? Amanda Palmer is an American musician um, who was most famous uh, for being the first person ever to raise a million dollars on a crowdfunding site to make an album. Uh, And based on the success of that, she then switched over to Patreon. And so she's totally crowdfunded. Like She makes everything in collaboration with her audience, and it's all very – it's quite touchy-feely, actually. It's all very intensely connected. You know, she's got 10,000 patrons. I've got 15. <laughs> so it's, you can't really compare the two things. But I still feel the pressure. I'm like, oh, okay, these people are giving me money. I've got to get on with it. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I, this this just reminds me of um, somebody I asked to do some some illustrations for a, for a report I was writing for a client uh, fairly recently. And um. She it was extraordinary. She she no longer takes commissions from anybody, right? As a business illustrator, she won't do projects or contracts. She does. She she just asks people to become a patron, like on her Patreon platform, uh, and then she gets to choose like who she works with and for how long. And she'll she, she'll have like informal agreements with people to to work um, on their stuff, you know, as part of this sort of trust relationship and and expectation they'll become patreons but she's completely moved off any contractual relationships with anyone wow that's an interesting use of the platform (laughs) yeah yeah wow but i I wonder how to what extent that may become a a new model not just for artists but for people in the business realm like you could become a coach and say okay i just i'll work with you um i just ask that you become a patron patreon and it sort of blows the mind a bit but i can well, it clearly is viable. I mean, she's she's doing it. Yeah, it's well. I mean, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because my experience of Patreon is is quite weird, actually. So I've got a, a good group of it's. It's at one stage was eighteen patrons. Now I'm down to fifteen. Um, and most of them don't interact with my stuff. They don't answer direct questions. Um, they're not particularly engaged with my actual poetry, but they like what I'm doing and they think it's important. So they're happy to give me money every month, but like anything else that I ask them to get involved with or to do or to give feedback. No, no, no. They're totally not interested in that. So I'm kind of stuck in like this weird little feedback loop where everybody who's a patron of mine, I actually know, and I know them fairly well, not everyone, but most of them. And they're so into the, like, let's support David with his poetry vibe that they're not really engaging with the poetry. They're just like, no, 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 you just carry on, which is, for me, just feels weird. Right. Right. But I guess maybe maybe it's the kind of thing that might grow, right, over time. And so initially people are, yeah, they're doing it because they want you you to to grow and to develop and, and 
and and maybe you'll attract over time more people who are into the art. Yeah. Well, that's why I decided to collate the sort of greatest hits out of the three years' worth of publishing poetry and publicly release a book, publish a thing, put it out into the world so that all that work can now reach a far greater audience. You know, because the the Patreon's largely open. If you go and find me on Patreon, you just go onto Patreon, search David Chislett, you'll be able to read most of my work, Uh, but not all of it. Um, But, you know, it's a social media thing. So in other words, you, you know, you've only got so many people in your social media community. And as I'm sure everyone has experienced by now, it's incredibly hard to burst out of that bubble to, to get your stuff to people who've never heard of you before or to even find stuff that you've never heard of before. And so the book was a way of trying to see if I could short circuit that process by putting the work out through a totally different medium into hopefully a totally different market. Yeah. And, and you've got some interesting collaborations on there, right? You've got some hmm. of them have been put to music and I, I remember listening to one of them. Yeah, and it, there's a like there's a mashup of, of two poems, and he's put that to music, right? Yeah, yeah. So I love that. Yeah, so, so I, my first poetry book I, I published in 2012, and with that one I released a CD. <laughs> That's how long ago it was. It was still viable to do a CD um, with ten tracks on from musician friends of mine who had picked a poem, used them as lyrics, and recorded a musical version of the poem, a song in their in their own studios, and then. I put it all together and put that out. And this time I thought, I want to take that a bit further. So yeah, there's music again, but this time um, there's an illustrator who's done something. I've got a ceramicist working on stuff. I'm busy finalizing to have someone who's going to to sign one of the poems, a video where someone's going to do a, a sign language translation as a performance of the work. Um, what else is going on? Yeah, a fine artist um, and yeah, a few more music ones. So it's just a really nice way of putting poetry in front of people's eyes who ordinarily wouldn't consider looking at poetry. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It uh, reminds me of some of the beat. I, I, I used to run um, a cabaret club in London ah. and we'd have these beat, these beat poets who, who would, yeah, it was a sort of, yeah. Performance poets who would, yeah. Who would uh, come and kind of rap their poetry, you might say, or perform their poetry. And, um, I loved it, yeah, and that and yeah. that was definitely a way. They, they were bringing poetry to yeah people who would definitely not pick up a poetry book, but would uh, listen to an act, you know, or watch an act as part of a show. Yeah. yeah, so I don't. My poems aren't really. They don't lend themselves to that sort of spoken word, sort of rhythm heavy rap kind of style. Uh, I'm a bit more traditional in that sense, um, but nonetheless, I'm not someone who writes a lot of rhyming verse that sticks to a specific rhythm or anything like that. It's very much uh, sort of more E.E. E. Cummings kind of broken verse. Yeah, it goes all over the place. <laughs> right. Uh, so I was going to ask, like, is, it, is there one that you feel that you, you could read now um, that would make sense? Well, yeah, I mean, there's always, uh, there's always one I could read now. I'm, probably gonna, I'm going to have to dig it out for you. But... <laughs> So if you give me a second, I'll, uh, I'll, no, I'll no. do that. But um, what I'll do is, you know, I, I just mentioned, of course, that it's not really spoken word poetry. But as a result of having written so much stuff and also trying to grow the Patreon and just get out to a few more people, one of the things that I did start doing was attending spoken word nights. Um, right. Uh, in, the, in the Netherlands and particularly in Amsterdam, there's a really cool 
spoken word event called Word Up. And so I, um, I went to a couple of those and I, and I did my stuff. And it's fine. You know, people, the, the lovely thing, which you can probably relate to about these kinds of nights is how open people are. Mm. It's, you, you, you turn up and you do your thing and everyone's like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. And they look for something to find interesting rather than just saying, oh, I'm not into that, um, which is really cool. But as a result of going to so many of these and seeing these guys standing up and doing this heavy rhythmic thing, I was like, oh, it really started to influence me. So I wrote one or two which were a little bit in that neck of the woods. So maybe I'll read one of those for you. So where is it? Just a bit off to. Here we go. So the, the theme of the one spoken word night was quite simply fire. So I wrote this one, which is called Making Fire, and it goes like this. Of all the thousands of tiny constructions, molecule pasted to molecule, how many escape the awful gravity that makes their creation possible? Thoughts that spiral from within, never becoming sentences, most crushed, incomplete before they become poems. If all of life is just a story, then just as many lives never escape the forge of their making, failing to become even Icarus before immolating, Enough are produced to sacrifice the many to ensure the fiery lives of the few. Yet, there is no such thing as fire. A chemical reaction, not an object. It forges, melts, and eliminates so much in its orbit. Evolution planked these salts together, not unintelligent design. But the gravity well, birthplace, and tomb of the heart of the creator holds us fast. The test lies ahead. We remain in the fiery womb. It's too much to comprehend the magnitude or triviality of our momentary existence. But hammer planks together we must, for that is what we are. And what we are is what we must do. Hmm. (laughs) What we are is what we must do. Hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, most of what I write about is about is quite preoccupied with that sort of thing. You know, what's it all about? To quote Monty Python, and and how do I fit into this? And and what what am I even doing here? Um, are, are very frequent themes in my work. Right, right, yeah, yeah. And is that I just, I just I'm struck with that phrase. It like what we are is what we must do. Yeah. So, I mean, part of that poem's kind of influenced by reading a book called The Eagle Ego Tunnel uh, by Metzinger, which is all about the way that our consciousness functions. And, you know, there's, there's a certain amount of predeterminism in the way that our brains work, um, according mm. to, to this particular guy. He says that so much of, our, of what we think is actually post-fact. You know, the things happened, our bodies reacted, and then consciously we take note of it you know we don't notice the delay because we're talking absolute microseconds here but a lot of what we think about what we're in the middle of doing is actually post-fact it's already happened um and so to that extent that kind of informs this thought that like what we are is what we do because we just have no choice you know it's just that's that's Mm -hmm. biomechanically there's a there's a, a kind of scary amount of determinism in the way our we physiologically function yeah, yeah, I've, I've I've read that before. That um, yeah, but this was in the context of therapy and how sometimes we 
especially when we're trying to do cognitive therapy and like like retrain our scripts or whatever. Right. So much yes. of what we're real training is is something that's happened after the fact, and actually that initial impulse happened way upstream. So trying to yeah. sort of rescript something that's that's way down the screen stream doesn't make much sense. No, no. But it's it's it is an interesting train of thought, and it links also to narrative therapy. You know, if you if you change the story, you change the reaction. So even if the stimulus is way upstream, if you can reprogram your story about that stimulus, the next time it comes on, you can react differently because mm-hmm. you're now in a different story. So they, of course, there's going to be a different outcome. But yeah, yeah. it starts to get complicated. You, it does start to get positive, but it does, it does it certainly has led me to, to attempt to work, especially in a th- therapeutic culture, more at the sort of physiological end. Um, so you're working closer to that initial impulse as opposed to the to the thought yeah um yeah yeah um i mean i've also just started reading um a book called things you can only see when you slow down except of course they've written it things you can see only when you slow down which bugs the hell out of me it's a grammar mistake on the title of the book but anyway and what what this guy's saying he's a buddhist monk and he's saying that, that actually there's always a moment before your sort of pre-programmed reaction kicks off. So stimulus happens, you get angry or upset or what have you. He says, if, you, if you're in the moment enough, you will always see that there's a moment where you basically actually choose to get angry or not. And when you slow right down, when you get right into the moment, that moment becomes apparent and that's when you can, you're close enough to the stimulus to kind of derail the automated mm. reaction, the habit, the habitual response, which is something I'm practicing at the moment. You know, it's just this idea of observing to see, oh, look, there's that reaction. There's the program. Like, okay, where was the moment? Can I, can I remember experiencing the moment? And uh, it's true. It's there. It really is there. I'm not great at doing it all the time, though. <laughs> that, that's, that's, that's fascinating because my sort of paradigm for that has always been, like, forget trying to catch yourself in the moment. Like, I've, that, yeah, that's always been my sort of attitude to it. Like, don't even try and, like, catch yourself in the moment. But when you're over it and you've had your, your reaction, then start to try and work back and trace back and, okay, where was it you got triggered and then, did, like, deal with that trigger and, you know, the context for that trigger. But I suppose what you're saying is, is actually different. It's challenging my attitude there. Now, maybe we really can slow down enough. So is it actually in that moment we can be present to the choice we're making, right? Yeah. So I, I, read, the, I read the chapter, and, and, and the book advises that you should only read a chapter at a time and basically spend some time contemplating or practicing or whatever you want to call it, the thoughts in that chapter before moving on to the second one. And it was a week or two later where I had a moment where I got triggered and I was like, Ugh! and I was like, oh, look at that. I... I felt the stimulus and it's like, I thought about it for a fraction of a second. I was like, I'm getting angry. And then I just like lost it. I was like, Oh, look at that. That's it. That's what he's talking about. That split second where you're literally doing a, a bit of mental arithmetic, like what's going to benefit me most letting this slide or getting pissed off <laughs> or do I care enough not to get pissed off? No. Right. And then just going, and I was like, Oh my goodness me. There really is a gap. Mm. which is interesting because that means possibly that that's not necessary because for me, that's always been part of my identity. I'm a passionate person. I'm quick to anger. I'm quick to excitement. I'm quick to enthusiasm. 
Maybe it's not. Maybe it's just a habit. Mm. And so spotting yeah. that gap for me was like, ah, huh, maybe I can choose something different. Yeah. Yeah. And it does open up. I mean, it obviously opens up a world of growth, doesn't it? If you can find yourself catching yourself in that gap. Yeah. Did you, and have you, and is, are you doing meditation as well or other practices alongside it? Or is it just this noticing? I'm terrible at meditation. Um, I'm, you know, I've got awful monkey mind is chattering away the whole time. You know, the internal narrator, blah, 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 you know, imposter, self-doubt, wada, 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 you're not good enough. Um, but even when I'm doing things I know that I'm good at, it's still yabbering on about various other options. You know? So I, I've, I've always found actual meditation extremely difficult to do. But I achieve meditative states when I'm engaged in intense physical exercise. So if I'm running hard, if I'm punching the boxing bag or, or whatever it is I'm doing, um, then I slip into those kind of mindless slash mindful states. Um, but no, I'm, I'm, I'm not practicing anything else alongside except rather just observance, like really just trying to slow down enough to really see what's going on, which I guess is a form of meditation. Um, yeah, well, that would be, yeah, that would, well, it's funny enough because the last episode we talked about mindfulness and the lady on the show broke it down into three types and that's, that would be one type according to her, the, right. the, the mindfulness observance. Yeah. You know, it's such a bloody buzzword at the moment as well. You almost don't want to say mindfulness, you know, um, because of all the baggage that comes along with that yeah. at the moment. You know, whereas, you know, really what I'm trying to do is, is just be really present, just be really observant, not just of the outside world, but of my interior world. Like what is actually going on here? Mm. Instead of making a whole range of assumptions and just letting the program run. Yeah, yeah. No, um, that's interesting. And, and, and is there a way to, I mean, I know people will sometimes like, I've, I met a girl I knew in, in Santa Monica had this thing on her phone where like every 15 minutes it would ping and like tell her to remind her to be present. Do you have any tricks like that? Or Well, no, not like that. But I guess what I have done is I've, I've identified like my regular triggers. Like there's certain things that annoy me or there's certain things that get me really excited. And then I also do stupid stuff. Um, so when I'm any, so I've identified those triggers and when I'm anywhere near a trigger, the I've now kind of, gradually condition myself that when there's a trigger proximate, I, I must become more alert. I must slow okay. down. I must focus. I must observe. It's like, okay, it's experimentation time. Well, let's see what's happening here. <laughs> and, and my theory is that I, yeah, sure. I, I'm not, I don't have it under control. It's not happening all the time, but I will reach a tipping point where I'm doing it often enough for the behavior to start to change. Yeah. No, and it's interesting. I, I don't know if you're familiar with the work with Michael, Michael Singer. So he, he wrote uh, the, the Untethered Soul and the Surrender Ooh. Experiment. But no, oh, so it really fascinating guy built a billion dollar software firm whilst, you know, on his um, basically spiritual retreat in the middle of forests in California. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it's this, yeah, so really fascinating. So anyhow, what, he talks about that kind of tipping point where eventually you can become so present to life that you know almost everything brings you joy because yeah you're just reveling in the experience no matter what what it is uh which sounds pretty extraordinary um yeah 
but but it does make sense like I, I, it, it, it does make sense to me it just feels like that's a that's a hell of a sort of level to reach of spiritual yeah. growth well on a more practical level a coach friend of mine actually said to me two nights ago she said um when you get into these situations just stop for a second and ask yourself what is the other person's intention like is their intention to annoy me is their intention to rip me off is their intention to steal from me is there do they mean me harm and i think nine times out of ten you can either say no to all of those things or i don't know it's it's not very often that you're in a situation where you literally go, yeah, <laughs> oh, he's got life in his head, right? He <laughs> means me on. Oh. The rest of the time, we're kind of reading stuff in based on what happened earlier today or last year or 10 years ago or when we were five. And so if we stop for the moment to ask, what does this person intend? What, what are their intentions for me? It gives you a nut pause long enough to go, oh, wait a second. Maybe I can not shout and scream or write an angry email. I can rather say, Hey, I'm not sure I understand what's going on. Can you help me out? And so that's, that's my new arrow in the quiver. <laughs> right. Right. And so what, if you don't mind me asking them, what are the, some of, what are the, some of the triggers you identified or like areas where you're like, okay, I need to be on alert. Well, so I've been speaking to a lot of new clients lately, you know, basically taking briefs and then I'm going away and I'm like, oh dear, I didn't ask enough of the right questions. I'm not quite sure what I'm doing. And I put together a proposal and then I send it over and I get a lot of pushback and I'm like, ah, but uh, this is, uh, and then I start having all these like weird thoughts about why they're doing this to me, you know? Right. And it's like, no, wait a second. That's not their intention. <laughs> they just want clarity. And I haven't actually been clear because I didn't do something earlier on properly. Right. So it's what you were saying about getting closer to the trigger. So I was so focused on this reaction of mine, but actually what I need to do is how I start the whole conversation. Yeah. Essentially to kind of render the trigger null and void. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I like that. And immediately what comes to my mind is, is with my kids. Cause I've got, you know, four year old, four and a half year old twins and Oof, yeah, there are certain patterns, especially with one of them where, uh, yeah, I can, yeah. I just know it's coming. I know. It's like if this continues for long enough, I'm gonna end up snapping, right? And so it's like, yeah, training myself to find a way, as you say, to slow down enough that you can be present enough to like your own reactions. It's yeah. Yeah, because if yeah, because I've also got a four year old at home. And, you know, like you say, you know, there's, there's, the train leaves the station and once it gets beyond a certain junction, there's no, this, you know, that's it. And so, but, but that also means that they've got triggers. So if you slow down enough, you can start to see what their triggers are. Yeah. And so that's what I'm focusing on with my kids. It's just like observing them that closely saying, okay, so when does push come to shove? What is the critical moment? And what I'm, what I'm seeing, and please, I'm most certainly not projecting this answer onto you. But what I'm noticing is that it's always in moments of my inattention when I'm just, when I'm with the kids, but I'm not there, you know, like my phone's buzz. So I've quickly had a look to see what that was. And then, oh, look at that. Oh, and then boom, it happens. Or, you know, it's it, those kinds of situations. So that's my focus for my kids at the moment is to, when I'm with my kids, I don't have my phone in my pocket anymore, for example. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, because they're twins. I mean, sometimes that that will be the case for me, you know, on my phone or whatever. But it's uh, it's very often that 
you're attention between the other, right? So there's yeah. this intense jealousy. And so, yeah, yeah. Like, I guess being a person is being aware when you are in a situation where both want your attention, you can only give attention to one. Like, how do you, how do you yeah. work with both of them? That's it. Because it only goes so far, right? Of course, you've got a plan. You know, there's two. So you're going to do this, but they both like. But then one of them needs an happy change and the other one doesn't. Or the other one's hungry or the other one's not or or whatever. And then it all just yeah. goes pear-shaped in a hurry, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then you don't want to do that, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. It's like you don't want to give mm-hmm. the kid who you know is going to kick off the much, the most more attention because that never feels... But yeah, yeah, but you so so instead, I, but I think what I'm taking from this conversation instead of trying to strategize it all out, it's less just like how can you how can you slow down, right? Just how can you slow down as being the the primary uh, focus, and then and work it out from there. Yeah, I mean, there's a number of books about this, and I've just mentioned the one, and then there's also there's there's thinking fast and slow, which is also a very interesting book. Um, it's, it really is a theme because, you know, the way we leave our lives is just at 400 miles an hour, isn't it? You know, you go from one Zoom call to the next in between, you're replying to WhatsApps and emails and you're shoveling some kind of food down your gut gizzard while you're, you know, squeezing your kidney to get to the loo in between. And it just doesn't stop. And, and you know, and that's just your social life. <laughs> <laughs> it's not to you. You've still got a social life with kids. You're doing something right. Nah, nah, not really, not really. But a lot of my social life does take place after bedtime via Zoom at the moment, you know? Yeah. It's kind of crazy. And so we're just constantly on on the hoof. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the name, Zoom call, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, my God, I never thought of that. Yeah, exactly. That's awful. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a friend of mine who's been on the show, um, Gib Bullock is 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 creating a decelerator for businesses, right? Yeah, on a Scottish island, forget the accelerator. Let's go decelerate. Yeah. Well, and again, I think that's for me. You know, just to, to swing this conversation round in a circle again, that's one of the functions for me of poetry. You got to slow right down. You know, you a poem's not a novel. It's not a nonfiction book. You're not looking at a whole range of issues. You're, you're micro-focusing on a thing that happened, on a way that you felt, on a particular hmm, artifact that you witnessed. And then you're razoring all the way down to what that meant, what that really felt, how that worked. And then on top of that, you're also trying to eliminate every extra word till you pare it down to just having the words that point exactly in the direction that you want the meaning to go. And that's, you know, you've really got to slow down and you've really got to shut off a whole bunch of distracting things in order to be able to get down to that point. So I think that's also one of the reasons why I do keep writing is in this sort of hyper-stimulated environment. It's just a, oof, it's just a silent dive. Yeah, that's right. I guess it's not like bashing out a PowerPoint, is it? It's like, right, I've got 15 (laughs) minutes, I'm going to crack out these slides yeah I, yeah with yeah. poetry this <laughs> thank you yeah. i mean look that does happen sometimes you know lightning flashes and it's all there and you're like Whoa! but i tend to write in phases you know i write and then i come back and then i fix or change or edit or amalgamate or throw away and you know that was also so nice about having the patreon all of those poems published the way they exactly the way they were written no intervention whatsoever 
and then coming and putting them all down and intervening with them. You know, some mm. had typos in them, goodness me. Um, some just, I read them back and I was like, yeah, that's, that line doesn't need to be there, chop, 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 chop. And then really distilling them and polishing and then condensing them down into a body of work, which is, I feel, a great improvement over what the, my, <laughs> my patrons got to read every week when I posted them for the first time. Right, yeah. So, so even that role of editing is taking place, but it's it's just you doing it, not the not the publisher. Yeah, and in some cases, I mean, the patrons were doing it. They were like saying, "Hey, Dave, uh, typo," or, or "Are you sure that's what you meant?" Because you don't have verb agreement there, or you say this and these and that. That just doesn't kind of hang to you. Like, oh, right, yeah, yeah. I mean, oh, so you did poems, get a bit of feedback from them. That's interesting. In the early yeah. days, I did. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The longer it's gone on, the less I've kind of got, and I, I found it really difficult to recruit new patrons. So, and, and now I'm beginning to, to understand why I, that I have found no other poets <laughs> on Patreon. <laughs> well, that's not true. I have found other poets on Patreon, but their profiles are still, there's nothing happening. Yeah, I guess it's, um, well, I guess, <laughs> has poetry ever been well paid in history? But That's a good point. I don't actually think so. <laughs> I'm guessing these guys who do performance poetry and can get like TikTok worthy clips and, you know, are possibly going to do a little better, but it's, uh, well, I mean, isn't that a lovely, interesting point? You know, people have a very antagonistic idea about what poetry is. It's old fashioned, it's stuffy, it's boring, but what you just said there is absolutely true. I mean, thanks to modern technology, a poet of a certain genre, a certain type, could actually probably make a way better living now than any time in the history of poetry. Yeah. Yeah. Can you monetize TikTok? <laughs> oh, <laughs> bloody hell you can. We, we, yeah. we were on fat, at holiday a few weeks back and we met a, a TikTok star, right? She was a daughter of a, yeah, these people we ended up meeting and I don't, I don't know how much she was earning, but I'm sure it was a fortune. She was, she was uh, promoting uh, iPhone cases on right. TikTok, and um, she just—I mean, she's clearly very charismatic, and you know, had had star quality. But 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 what she was doing was, um, it seems to me, was doing lip syncing in a bikini. Uh, you know, two minute for two minute videos, and yeah. uh, got hundreds of thousands of followers. So. Um, yeah, well, I'll leave that up for another poet. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, maybe you need to get out your sort of that that punk, you know, rediscover your punk edge, which you mentioned in the last show, right? Your your, yeah. your former life as a punk, and, and I don't know. Is that well, it's, it's punk quite interesting. poetry TikTok? Yeah, it's it's it is interesting that as I've gotten older, I I'm not that kind of angry anymore. I mean, yeah. I, I certainly am still angry. I still look at the world and think, this is just, you know, seriously, people, what are we all thinking? And I'm becoming more and more aware of exactly how screwed we actually are and how structurally it is just held in place. But that kind of like that roaring, screaming, anger is an energy thing. It, ah, I guess what struck me eventually was that like it wasn't achieving anything. I'm, I'm, I'm much more now on trying to, do stuff that changes people or, or changes thought patterns and, and, and thereby has a knock-on effect of actually changing the way the world works rather than 
the kind of screaming and yelling uh, anarchy in the UK kind of kind of approach. Because I mean, let's be honest, right? It didn't change anything. Um, well, I don't know. I mean, I, I think what does happen. I I think something happens. I mean, I do, I do think you, you move culture. You know, you move that. You, you shift culture, and they say politics is up. You know, downstream culture. I do I do think that you know, angry young men do change what's acceptable in culture, and that has big knock on effects. Yeah, or, or see, angry young women do a less. You know, yeah. to some extent. And then you see twelve-year-old girls with Joey Ramone's t-shirts. You know, they haven't even been alive as long as he's been dead. They've got no idea what they're wearing. <laughs> So the artifact has emerged in culture, but but the impetus, the thought, the I don't know. I'm not sure about that one. Um, well, if I think of um, uh, George Carlin, right, who's said yeah. all those swear words, like famously, and yeah, and, uh, in his stage act, right, suddenly it becomes more acceptable to swear on. Yeah, you know, in a comedy set, and well, what does that mean? Well, maybe people would start, you know, letting a little bit more of their truth out in a comedy set, and it becomes a bit more confessional sort of comedy. And suddenly, just taking comedy as an example, mm-hmm. it, it's slightly more okay to share certain personal details about yourself that you may not have done previously, at least for comics. And so, I do think these have, you know, these cultural yeah. acts have impacts on society oh yeah i'll go along with that i mean that's a good example actually i like that i think just sometimes rock and roll is just so full of myths that it's very hard to get away from that you know the 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 rubbish you know like these are all kinds of some kind of genius folk who um because they're genius folk got these chances you know and when that's almost never the case um and, and therefore i find sometimes especially with music that the kind of potential beneficial cultural impact is a little bit diluted, for lack of a better word. Yeah, I, like, I mean, I, yeah. I like your comedy example, though, because I can totally see that. Like, that just like, goes. But I struggle to think now, like, you know, because music's become so commodified. If you think about punk rock, now, now you can see girls wearing, like, tons of makeup with uber-done nails with jeans that have had custom holes cut out of them. That's the cultural impact of punk rock. <laughs> you know, and I'm like going, hmm, not sure if this has really helped anything at all. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely you could have debates. And of course, the ultra conservatives would say this has been ruinous for our society and it's, it's led us down a path of decadence and it's destroyed what we've had. Um, but there will be those, you know, who will say, you know, this has opened up forms of expression and, you know, society is more open and, you know, we have all these opportunities to. To, to express identities that were never possible before, right? They're, they're going to be both sides of that argument, but I certainly think it, yeah. Yeah. Angry artists impact society. I'm, I'm sure, sure of that. Well, they certainly get heard, which is a good thing. Yeah. 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 Um, quite, in- quite interesting. Yeah. The, the, the biggest focus for me in my own personal development is being less angry. <laughs> <laughs> that's not going to help me become a one-third of TikTok. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. You, you—that's been your thing, has it? Like, how can I be less angry? Yeah, yeah. Because I'm not actually. What I've realised is that I'm not actually an angry person. I've just spent a lot of time acting angry. It's almost like it was a survival strategy that I picked up somewhere along the line that proved to be pretty effective back when I picked it up, and I've dragged it with me all this way, and now I'm questioning whether it actually serves me or not. 
Okay, because I know you transitioned from out of punk, right? And I can certainly see how like being angry as a punk rocker is, yeah, helps. But you kept it after uh, post punk. Yeah, well, you know, I grew up in South Africa, you know, so like in a totally in- unjust situation. Um, uh, you know, I mean, even as a white person, becoming aware of that as a as a as a young te- as a teenager, and then as a, as a young man. And then going into a post-environment South African environment, which was extremely confusing with the politics and the, and the all the various things that have happened, you know, I think that kind of outsider feeling remained with me because you know under apartheid I was very much an outsider because of my cultural and specific interests, and after apartheid I remained an outsider, <laughs> um, and so that feeling of of being isolated and pushed aside remained, and and, and I guess therefore also the anger did, right. And what, and what did you get? And because obviously now you you're a you're a consultant, a coach to companies around around creativity. But uh, immediately after your punk years, remind me what you. I think we've been over this before. But where did you get to after that? Well, I was managing and promoting bands. Um, okay, that's right. Know, yeah, sort of rock and roll. Yeah, so it's kind of stayed in in you know on the on the same plot of land, but just in a different corner. Um, so it was a lot less angry young men. And it was more just like, you know, good times, rock and roll, having a lot of fun, um, um, promoting and putting together shows and, and managing the affairs of artists, which uh, I guess is also a, a great field to stay in if you want to be angry, because there's also a lot of exploitation and, and stuff that goes on there. <laughs> so, yeah. I hadn't quite thought of it like that before until you asked that question, actually. But yeah, I mean, if you, you want to see injustice, go into the music industry. It's enough to piss anybody off. Right. Yeah, well, we're getting that in the UK. We've had some of the artists who've come through the, the kind of talent show sausage machine here, like speaking yeah. up and saying how exploitative it is. Yeah. That's awful. I mean, you, you reach the, a certain level of, of, of the competition and you sign a contract, you know, even before you've won. So by the time you've won, when you've actually got some power to negotiate, they've taken that away from you by making it a condition of the competition that you sign before you win. It's, right. I mean, that's just evil. Yeah, but there mm. you go. So, yeah, that helped keep me pretty much annoyed for another 20 years extra. <laughs> <laughs> and so you obviously weren't one of the arsehole managers screwing your artists. No, I, I think at the end of the day, my final analysis was that I was actually somewhat enthusiastic, but borderline incompetent. I, I was a very good road manager. Um, I was very good at spotting what I what worked live and what was good live and helping people with that. But I was never as good as you would want your manager to be with the business end of the stick, with the intellectual property management and the rights and the and the deal side of things. I was much more the practical. The guy who was kind of helping the, the seriously impractical musicians behave in a slightly more practical way so they could continue to do what they do. Right, right. Um, and paying the, I don't know, it's cliched, isn't it? Paying the hotel repair bills. Yeah, yeah. I mean, thankfully, no one I ever managed was famous enough to trash a hotel. Uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, you know, I would, I would be the guy at two o'clock in the morning walking up to the bouncer at the door and saying, right, come on, give us a spit of the dosh. Right. And then the bouncer's like, oh, yeah, well, we didn't take so much money. And I've got to, you know, argue with this, whatever, six foot five <laughs> army veteran who's had steroids and cocaine for dinner about how much money we're owed. And like, damn, well, give it to me. <laughs> that was my job. <laughs> so they're a bit of anger held. 
Yeah, you had to punch above your weight to get your cash. <laughs> yeah, frightening times sometimes. It's really crazy. Yeah. That just reminds me of when, uh, we, when I was running that cavalry show, we had one uh, comic who came and uh, we, we weren't paying very much. We, we, we'd got these big venues, um, you know, these big posh venues in London, but our first few shows had made a loss. So we were desperately trying to kind of, um, you know, recoup our, our losses. And so we were making reasonable profit on these shows, but we were still like way underwater overall. And this comic came on and she, she looked at the room and she looked, he was there and saw people drinking champagne and looked at her feet. It was like literally five minutes before we announced her on stage. You're like, there's no way I'm going on stage unless you, um, you know, you double my, double my feet. And so right. negotiating backstage before she went on. Yeah. We gave her the money. Cool. It was, uh, she had us over a barrel, but. Yeah. Not cool. <laughs> yeah. No, those are, it's a completely different life, isn't it? That when you come into the corporate land and, you know, it's purchase orders and, you know, it's just a totally different world, isn't it? Than, yeah, you know, I still get a bit entertainment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially with all the paperwork and the procedures, I still sometimes go like, wow, I'm just a bit lost here. Like, wait a second, what's actually going on? But you don't end up with sort of <clears throat> drunken arguments, um, you know, at one in the morning over getting paid. <laughs> yeah, no, that's the thing of the past. <laughs> Yeah, yes. yeah. You in your retreat in rural uh, Holland in the woods must feel the world away from that life. It is, and I, you know, I think that is definitely one of the bigger aspects of it that I'm enjoying. It's just this idea that it's it is so far removed from from wh- where I have come from that it is restful in in that in that sense alone. You know, it doesn't mean to say that all of that stuff's been dealt with, but at least I have some rest from it where I am right now. Yeah. Yeah. And you never feel any pangs to want to go back into that world. Well, God, no, no. I mean, apart from anything else, I mean, I've been out of the music industry for maybe 10, 15 years. The playing field has completely changed. I don't, you know, what I used to do and how I used to do it, I don't think is entirely relevant anymore. There are so many new options and things that you need to really actively be engaged with. If you're wanting to make a career, that I wouldn't have the confidence to say to someone, yeah, I'll, I'll hold your hand through this. <laughs> I, I would need someone to hold my hand through this, I think. Right, right. So no, no yeah. I don't miss it at all. Not a chance. Yeah. And you've got your creative, you know, your creative outlet with the poetry and, and working with clients. And- yeah. I've also got a couple of guitars in the room here as well, so I muck about with that every now and then. And it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's more intrinsic motivation, right? when you join a band and you're in the music, it's like, yeah, you know, you want to make it. So you, you're looking for that extrinsic uh, acknowledgement, you know, sales, awards, record deals. It's, it's pushing out an awful lot. Whereas now I, I do these things because I want to, because they mean something mm. to me. Uh, and that's a lot more satisfying actually. Yeah. 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 And I guess you keep that joy for the creativity, which you can then bring to your clients, to the organizations, right? You've not, you've not sort of lost that. Yeah, in a joy for it all. Yeah, that's it. You know, it's, it, it, and I guess for me that was the big realization was like going. Creativity itself isn't bad. You know that, that all that music stuff. That's one expression of it. It's, it's it's kind of like a product that comes out a particular sausage factory. But the process that I've I've still got that, and I can do whatever I want with that. And that for me was very liberating when I finally realized that it's like. 
but I'm not trapped. I don't have to keep on trying to find a way to be in that space. I can just take who I am and what I do and, and what I know and go somewhere else with it, mm. which was incredibly liberating. Yeah, and, and you know, laudable, right? You've, you've made that switch, right? You know, you've seen that well, and made the change, yeah. jumped on it and had the confidence to do it and worked at it and build up, you know, the business and the clients. I mean, all of that, that's yeah. hats off. Thanks. Yeah. Work in progress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so what do you think? I mean, you're, you've had this patron experience with the poetry. What Are you thinking you'll do another round? Like, what are you having a conversation with your patrons? What's the, what's the situation? Well, my Patreon is actually currently in hiatus indefinitely. I'm, I'm taking a break for the summer because I need to figure that out. Um, because the Patreon, I mean, for me, I started with Patreon because I wanted the community. I wanted the, the feedback. I wanted the chit-chat. I wanted a bit of give and take. And, and, and the money, of course, was lovely. And in actual fact, in three years of being on Patreon, I've earned more from my poetry than I've ever earned in my entire life all put together. But really? Yeah. yeah. So in yeah. three years, from well, I mean, your patrons sort of, on poetry, you've earned yeah. more than from anything else in your entire life. From poetry, yeah. From poetry. Oh, yeah, from yeah, poetry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not in total yeah. across. So in three years, I've earned approximately $2,000. Right. Which is nothing. But if you speak to a successful poet with an actual publishing deal and, and, and hear what they get paid for their royalties – you quickly begin to realize that it's actually not too shabby. Um, but anyway, so now I'm kind of sitting there and I've realized that what I really want is this kind of, you know, this community interaction thing. And I'm not sure if Patreon's the place to build it. I think once you've got it, it's a great place to house it and to run it, but I'm not sure it's the place to build it. So that's what I'm trying to work out. I don't know how I'm going to continue. We'll see. Yeah. But you are going to keep going with the poetry. Regardless, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, the other thing we said we'd talk about was getting old, which we kind of touched on, right? You've yeah, lost yeah. some of your anger. You're working yeah. on your triggers, which I think is something that uh, I don't know. I don't know if there's too many people in their teens or their 20s who are particularly bothered about what triggers them and how they might deal with it. No, I don't think so. <laughs> no, I do think that comes later in life. But uh, And it sounds like like focusing a little bit or on what a little bit more on your intrinsic motivation what has you you know gives you pleasure intrinsically maybe that's a thread is it is there anything else you notice as you age well uh, the one thing that i have noticed about getting getting older without growing old is that it, it's actually it's it's great because you actually know so much like you don't it, and i know an awful lot well i know a little bit about an awful lot like an awful lot you know Thanks to my career in journalism and marketing and having been involved in corporates and teaching and this and that, I've just brushed up against so many different subject areas that I just know at least the top line about a huge array of things. And what that does is it gives you an ability to have a conversation with almost anybody. And what that gives you is the opportunity to learn a hell of a lot more about these things that you only have top line knowledge of. So one of the things I'm enjoying about now, you know, having reached my 50s is like, is, is, is this idea that there's still so much out there to learn and that I've had a very rich and varied life and I've actually learned a huge amount. And, and, the, and the, the sort of realizations and the connecting of the dots and the sort of aha moments I keep on having just based on finally parking two things that I've learned next to each other and going, oh, wait, but that's connected. 
And even if it isn't really, it makes sense to me and it makes me feel better and I can sort of like navigate the next jump or whatever. Um, I'm really enjoying that. Instead of this feeling of your early 20s, like, oh, but I just don't know. And what do I do? And how do I answer that question? And like most of the time now, I'm like, you know, if I slow down enough, I can figure it out because I've probably brushed up against it somewhere along the line. Right. That's, that's comforting. I mean, I can see why people get stuck in their ways as they get really old. Because there's a there's a comfort in this idea that like well actually you kind of have been there and done that and you therefore you can rely on that in a certain way that you wouldn't have up until your possibly your early forties. Right. Yeah. It, it seems like there's. It seems like some some people as they age appear to get more and more curious and exploratory and you know also almost expansive right in their worldviews and, and they take yeah. on more and more and understand more and more positions and you know some of the people i admire the most were still writing and active into the 80s and 90s and arthur janov who i've talked about on the show before who's you know whose books influenced my you know, my therapeutic journey but he was like still churning out the blog posts in you know his late 80s and 90s and yeah and yeah and as you say there are others who you know they sort of have, have seem to have sort of formed a worldview by age 35 and kind of go to that with their grave, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's definitely not going to be me. Um, and, and I like the fact that my, that my age gives me that, you know, just that. But look, also, I was born in one country. I grew up in another. I've, and I'm now living in a third. <laughs> I don't really have much choice. I've got to keep growing and moving. Otherwise, it's these, these, those things would have been impossible to navigate. Mm. Yeah, and I guess having kids as well, mine quite aren't quite the age but you'll you'll start to see the society that they see reflected right yeah that's gonna get interesting (laughs) so you've got one child two two so my daughter is four and my son is two more and two okay so the one's younger yeah daughter's four and son's two yeah so the dynamic you have with your twins i have with the four and the two-year-old it's kind of like we love each other. We hate each other. We're jealous. No, it's fine. It's, yeah, it's quite exhausting. <laughs> yeah, I guess the fights are over quicker, though. There's not so yes. much of a match-up. <laughs> no, no, no. Although my son is a big boy, and I think within a year, he's going to overpower his older sister without too much trouble. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, we'll burn that bridge when we get to it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, David, is there is there anything else? We, you know, we've we've touched on your poetry. We've we talked about getting older. You know, they were, that were, they were the two things we kind of wanted to touch on. Is there anything else? No, I think you know. Interestingly enough, those two things for me these days are very inextricably intertwined. Yeah, you know, the, my poetry is a reflection of my of my aging process, of my growth, of my change, and my my journey. And uh, long may it stay that way. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely put uh, some links to the, you know, to the poetry where they can get the book and where they can get your collaborations, you know, as we talked about sort of the music and the performance and so on. Um, And and of course, to weapons of mass creation. Yes. Which is your (laughs) offering to the business world. So, yeah. Yeah. Cool. And thanks again, Richard. Really nice to chat. No, it's been wonderful. Thank you. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.